1: Hello
0: and welcome to the first post-summer break edition of Sweden in Focus, the locals weekly podcast where we discuss what's making the news and getting people talking in Sweden. We're recording this episode on Thursday, the 4th of August. In this week's show, we'll take a quick look at the state of play in the opinion polls to see who is likely to form the next government with the election just over a month away. We're also gonna chat a little bit about the historical and cultural reasons for people taking so much time off work during the summer holidays in Sweden. We will talk about what we know about a contentious government proposal to introduce language tests for permanent residency. And finally, we're going to examine a government minister's proposal to place a limit on how many people of non-Nordic origin are allowed to live in vulnerable areas. I'm Paul Amani, and with me to dissect all this, we have the locals James Savage, Richard Orange and Becky Waterton. And we're also going to be joined a little bit later by the editor of The Local Denmark, Michael Barrett. How are you all? Yeah, good. Thanks. Fantastic. Yeah, good. How's your summer been?
2: Very chilled. I've just been in Malmo the whole time, which has been nice. First uh, summer in Sweden without COVID restrictions, so it's been like discovering a new city for me.
3: Yeah, it's been, it's been wonderful. It's been we've been out, out in the countryside in uh, southwest Skorna, you know, Uestergren, and basically spent about an hour inside a day. You know, it's great just to be out in the fresh air. You know non-stop swimming in lakes going to the beach in the forest oh, that's great
2: me and my husband had a goal of walking 10 kilometers minimum every day and i think we 90 of days during this holiday we've done it so i'm pretty proud of myself i don't feel too bad sitting in front of my computer every day now
4: i've been working most of the summer but i'm looking forward to getting away from sweden where i think the thing about being in your summer house is that you're kind of a bit too available I want to be outside the country where people... Yeah, you're technically
2: me. on holiday now, aren't you, James?
4: <laughs> I am. Well, I, I, I have been technically on holiday for two weeks. So I don't think I've had a day off. <laughs> <laughs>
0: we'll hunt you and we'll find you. Yeah. There is no
4: escape. I mean, it's quite funny where I've been in, in
3: Estulien, which is like this kind of, it's where, I don't know, a lot of Stockholmers go there in the summer and, and you go to the local cafe and it's full of people having conference calls and uh, you know busy
4: typing away
3: and like almost everyone is working.
4: I, mean, I think that's the downside of these long summer holidays in so many jobs, particularly now when you can work remotely, is that it's kind of hard to leave many jobs behind for four or five weeks. Particularly if you're, if you're like running something if you're like a manager or whatever. And and so, particularly for that length of time, and, and actually these sort of one or two weeks summer holidays you have in other countries lend themselves better, in fact, to sort of totally switching off and saying, I'm getting away from it all, because you can you can leave most things for one or two weeks. It's hard to leave anything for four or five weeks. I don't know. The the, 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 the five-week sum holiday is great if you can get it, but actually... It's It has its drawbacks too.
2: According to my Swedish husband, you can't switch off properly unless you have at least three weeks of holiday. So unfortunately, I think that might not work,
4: James. Three weeks of holiday where I could actually switch off and throw my phone into the sea, then I'm, yes. I'm up for it.
0: So the next few weeks are going to be dominated by the election. The Social Democrats have governed Sweden for the last eight years, but only by the skin of their teeth through patchwork alliances and painful compromises that have sometimes left even the keenest politics watchers scratching their heads and wondering who's really in charge. So Magdalena Andersson took over from Stefan Löfven as party leader last year and became prime minister in November. And since then, the Social Democrats have been doing very well in the polls. But will they be able to cobble together a government with the help of some strange bedfellows? Or will the political right fronted by the moderate parties of Christosan wrest back control after nearly a decade in opposition? On September the 11th, voters in Sweden will get to have their say, but we already have some indications of which way the wind is blowing. What are the opinion polls telling us, James? Well, first of all, the opinion polls are telling us that the Social Democrats are doing
4: incredibly well as a party. They're hovering around 30 31 percent which if that was if that if that was to be reflected in the election result would be one of their, their best election results for many many years so they're doing well the moderates are hovering around their election result last time which is you know all right for them i think what the moderates will be pleased about is that they're ahead of the sweden democrats who have basically stagnated around about 17 percent which you know given if you look down on a 20-year scale, that's a really high level. But their momentum has been stopped, which I think is is kind of what a lot of, um, what I think particularly the moderates have been hoping for. So I think in that respect, the moderates will be happy. And the fact that the moderates are generally a few points, three, four points ahead of the Sweden Democrats in the polls, about 20, 21% about mm. against 16,
2: 17%. Did the Sweden Democrats have... Am I remembering correctly? Or did the Sweden Democrats for 18 in the last election.
4: Yeah, they got 18 in the last election. Yeah,
2: so it'd be about the same or so a little be less than what they same. got last Maybe year.
4: a little less. In some polls, they're polling is as low as 16%. I mean, there's a bit of variation in the polls there. But certainly that advance that we saw has, has stalled. And, you know, they've fallen back from some of their high um, ratings that they, that they had, you know, earlier in this parliamentary term, where they were, you know, up, up around 20, sometimes, you know, threatening the moderates for second place. There's enough water between the Sweden Democrats and the moderates now for the moderates to feel relatively comfortable about being the second largest party. Do they have a chance of forming
0: a government, the moderates? Well, they
4: do. And, and actually, if you look at the blocks. Um, so you've got you've got two blocks now in Swedish politics: the Social Democrats, together with the Left Party, the Green Party, and the Centre Party. And, you know, they are pretty much at level pegging with the moderates who would form a government with the the Christian Democrats and the liberals with support of the Sweden Democrats. So those two blocks are are pretty much level pegging. You know, some polls you see one block slightly ahead of the other, but the general picture is of a a very, very close race there. The big joker in the pack here, though, is that the Green Party is consistently polling less than the 4% that it needs to get into parliament. It's polling, you know, generally. Around three, um, three point five percent, and if it only achieved three point five percent in the election, uh, it wouldn't get into parliament, and therefore that would mean that the Social Democrats, despite their political grouping, getting perhaps more votes than the right-wing political grouping wouldn't be the largest bloc in parliament and therefore would not form the government. So, you know, if the, if the Greens don't get in, the Social Democrats could have a fantastic election in their own right, but would not be able to form, uh, form a government. On the other side, um, what's interesting is that the Liberal Party, which has been, for most of this parliament, polling well under the thres- the 4% threshold, is now in, in recent polls, polling consistently over the threshold, around 5%, sometimes a little bit more, sometimes up as far as 6%. So in that respect, the weakest link in the right-wing block has got a lot stronger. And the weakest link in the left-wing block is still looking pretty ropey. What a lot of observers say, though, is that in the run-up to the election, we'll see the Greens particularly, well, all the small parties getting more attention because they're, they're given sort of a, a much greater sense, sort of equality in the, um, in the debates and in, 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 in uh, television coverage. And that may well help them get that extra mm. 0.5% to get, over the, to, to get over the line. Also, they might borrow some votes effectively from the, from the Social Democrats. Social Democrat, Democrat voters will see that in order for their side to win, um, they might need to help out the little brother.
0: You and Richard recorded a, a really interesting podcast from Alma in which listeners can go back and, and find if you haven't listened to it yet. But what has happened um, since then in Swedish politics? Have there been any interesting developments over the summer?
3: One thing that I found really interesting is how the moderates and the parties they're with are sort of running their campaign, because I think a couple of days ago, they came out with their Utomhus reclam campaign, which means a sort of outdoor billboard campaign. And they had, I think, 11 posters, which are kind of trying to give the sense that they're agreed on things as a block because they don't agree on that much, really. So it said, er einige, We are agreed on. And what I found interesting is, is I think there's a, there's a little bit of the kind of political techniques you've seen in the US and the UK. Like in the UK, in the run up to the Brexit referendum, they had this famous slogan on a bus saying this will bring back 350 million to the health service from Brussels. And the architect of that idea was kind of unapologetic about the fact that it isn't true because he says, well, it forces them to talk about it because then they say that isn't true. It, you know, it's not that much money. And then what the voter is left with is a sense of there will be cash coming back. You end up, re- by trying to correct what is false, you end up reinforcing the message that you're trying to fight against. And in Sweden, the moderates have been pushing again and again, this idea that they're against bringing back pro- a property tax, a hit scat, which was abolished in 2008 by the Reinfeldt government. And um, You know, Magdalena Anderson, Finance Minister Mikhail they are saying again and again, we have no plans to bring back this tax. But the the moderates still, after they've said that throughout the summer, stuck that on their billboards a Mm. couple of days ago. So it's obviously something that they're going, well, we don't care. (laughs) We don't care that you're not. We're still going to go ahead with it. And, And they justify it by finding there's one... There's one MP in Stockholm who has suggested it. And that's all they have to go on. <laughs> and that's what's in their campaign material. But it, And it's not just that. Also on that thing, they had Nei till busting of a Lever, which is, you know, bussing children from poor areas to good schools and maybe good areas to poor schools, I'm not sure. And, and that's also something which is it's just not in the Social Democrats' policy. They're not planning to force kids to go on buses and go to schools they don't want to go to. It's just not going to happen. And yet that's one of the 10 things they're sticking on their posters. And I I feel that there's
4: an element of this kind of post-fact, you know, we don't care if it's true. We're just going to do it anyway. Okay, but the moderates would say in in response to that, that they are kind of extrapolating from proposals that the Social Democrats have put forward and saying, well, this will be the consequence of what you're saying there. And I think there's a bit of populism on both sides here. I mean, that proposal is in response to a proposal from the Social Democrats, which says that schools will have to work to have diversity in the composition of their pupils. But it doesn't say how. And if you were to sort of if you were to if you were to take what they're saying seriously if they were going to actually do something effective to force schools to have diverse pupil compositions then it would have to mean some kind of busing of children from one area to another, because Sweden's residential areas are pretty segregated. So, yeah, they're taking something very vague from the Social Democrats. It was probably deliberately vague because they didn't really know what it meant. And they're spinning it to their advantage into something that sounds sounds scary and, and, and unpleasant for people.
2: The majority of voters, I mean, there's lots of people that don't vote as well, but the majority of voters who walk past a billboard will see that and say, oh, wow, yeah, no, I'm against that too. I'll vote for the moderates. Like, most people will not go and kind of Google, okay, is this true? What does this mean? Are the Social Democrats going to do that? So it doesn't really matter whether it's true or not, in terms of getting voters. Because as soon as you plant the idea in someone's head, if you vote for the other party, this is going to happen, then they're going to think, oh, shit, then I should vote for this person instead.
3: I mean, on the Fastic Hits gap, they're tweeting out these graphs of how much tax you pay on your house now and how much tax you'd pay under Fastic Hits gap. You know, you're going to pay 10 times more, it's going to be 20,000 kroner a year. Hit... To your budget, and no one's proposing as facigate
4: tax it's 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 bizarre, yeah, I mean the property tax thing, the facigate gap proposal it, well it's not a proposal, I mean, like you say it's it's absolute rubbish, and the social Democrats are quite clear that they wouldn't they're not planning to introduce um property tax,
0: just a reminder that if you're a paying member of the local, we have a weekly newsletter called Sweden elects that's produced. By editor Emma Lovegrain and focuses on the upcoming election. You can sign up now at thelocal.se forward slash newsletters. Now, if you've been in Swedish cities over the past few weeks, you've probably noticed that they have a ghostly feel to them, and that's because Swedes traditionally take long summer holidays, as we were discussing earlier, in extreme cases, stretching from midsummer right up until the middle of August. If you've come from a culture where people take a couple of weeks at most, it can come as a bit of a shock. Becky, why do Swedes take such long summer holidays?
2: A lot of it kind of traces back to this industry semester, so kind of industry holiday. So it goes back to when Sweden became kind of an industrial society. Trade unions were very important, have also historically been very important, and kind of began to negotiate, saying factories need to shut down for a period during the summer, three or four weeks in July usually so people can have a break and that's not that's not necessarily exactly how it is now like so my husband used to work in a workshop and their their workshop did shut down but often they'd still have a few people around just to pack orders and stuff so it's not exactly kind of that mandated you need to go on holiday now that it was in the past but um that's kind of where it traces back to the law states that your employer has to agree to giving you three weeks off during summer consecutively, they can say, no, I want you to take it in July instead of June or August. They can move Mm. it around, but you, you legally have the right to have those holidays. Um, And then if you have a collective after all, you might even have more holidays. I mean, that's that's part of the reason why, like if you have five weeks of holiday a year and then your kids are off school for six weeks and you're going to probably take a big chunk of that in summer to kind of be able to have your kids at home.
0: You also get paid more during the summer, don't you?
2: Yeah, you have this semester tillig, semester learn. It's basically holiday pay, which can be every month or it can be like a lump sum. After you've taken your holiday, you get like a nice bonus bonus. when you come back that varies depending on if you work on an hourly rate or on a or you get like a salary um so it varies kind of but you you do get it
0: is the idea that you're going to need more disposable income during your holidays or where what does that come from yes uh, that's
4: my understanding is that that's part of the philosophy behind semester Like you will have high, you will have higher expenses when you're on holiday and this kind of idea that sort of built into the Swedish system or was sort of built into the folkhem system that, you know, saving your own money for spending when you're on holiday is not it's not how the system works. You earn enough to live on. And then, you know, when you retire, you will, your state pension will take care of you. And if you get sick, then you then then the then the sick pay will take care of you. And when you're on holiday, your extra expenses will be paid for by the system.
0: Why do people take it in, you know, in other parts of Europe, people take all of August off? Why is it specifically July in Sweden? Well, it's the best weather? I think it's I think it's
4: a, I think it's pretty straightforward. I mean, if you look at how the weather develops in Sweden during the summer, the best weather is often in July and in the second half of August it's getting it's getting a bit autumnal. It always depressed me when I first came to Sweden and and they were they were calling mid-August huston the autumn. But it kind of is often. Yeah. It's that you know you w- you will see the weather turning, getting a bit cooler, a bit wetter. The, even the leaves starting to starting to turn. Sometimes even as early as that. And yeah, it, it's it's kind of it's a bit autumnal, and the weather's better in July, so that's where they take it. It's lighter as well. It's lovely. I've like
3: tried to. I've sort of maybe like ten years ago. I decided I have to take. You have to take the three weeks off in July. Uh, uh, Because if you don't, which I've done lots of times working at Swedish radio or, you know, you you can get a lot of like, um, what do you call it, vicaria, you you take over, you, you can get some temp jobs working over the summer. But if you do that. You miss out on just the best time to be in Sweden. And, and it's almost, you can't, if you're working, you've sort of got one arm t- tied behind your back. You can't contact anyone. There's no one around. There's nothing to do. If you have to be in the city, it's absolutely, completely tedious. There's nothing happening. And really, to work through the whole of July is just miserable. <laughs> you, really, you really, really do want to take it off.
0: We're going to turn now to language tests and we're joined now and for the rest of the podcast by Michael Barrett, the editor of The Local Denmark. Welcome to the podcast, Michael.
5: Hi, Paul. Thanks.
0: Yeah, and we'll be back to you in just a second. So back at the at the end of June, the Social Democrats announced that they wanted to introduce a language test for people seeking permanent residency. This followed on the heels of a similar proposal for citizenship applicants When uh, Richard spoke to the integration minister Anders Ugemann at Almadalan a little while back, he said that Sweden would learn from the Danish experience and by that he meant that Sweden would not make it quite so horribly difficult. How hard is the
5: Danish test, Michael? Um, it's not that hard, uh, relatively speaking, I would say. <laughs> it's easier than the test that you have to pass uh, for um, your citizenship application, for example. It's kind of a level below that. Right. And given that, because of the Danish criteria for permanent residency, most people that are applying will have lived in Denmark for eight years by the time they they'll be taking the language test... Roughly eight years, perhaps a little less if they're taking the test before they apply. But they'll have been in Denmark long enough to have, generally, I would say, to have have, uh, the level of Danish you'd need to pass this test. You do need to be able to communicate and understand Danish. Uh, You can't really have any gaps, but you don't have to do anything complicated or technical, that, that's probably the best way I can describe it.
0: So in the in the Swedish context, Becky, do we know yet what level of Swedish will be required for residency and or for citizenship?
2: Yeah, so you're Swedish for a, for a permanent residence permit. You need to show that you can, you have the level of Swedish equivalent to level C at SFI, so Swedish for immigrants, which is the third level and the second highest. So there's one more level after that. So that basically means that you have a high level of Swedish, you can speak, listen, read and write Swedish in kind of ordinary life situations. So studying, work, ordering stuff in supermarkets, that kind of stuff. But then there will be an exemption for children or very old people who kind of can't be expected to learn Swedish to that level. Um, And then for citizenship, that's going to be the the highest level. So it's going to be similar to Denmark there, that you have Mm. a slightly lower level for residency and then a higher level for citizenship.
3: Citizenship, it's the same level for speaking and writing as for residency, but they want a harder level for listening and... Uh, reading. reading, yeah. Mm-hmm. So they'll they'll be it's it's level D for you know inward bound language.
2: Yeah, and then if you have if you've got this qualification from SFI, that's how you can prove it. Um, if you've got this certificate from the from the course there.
0: And do we do we know yet when these language requirements are likely to come into force?
2: So it's probably going to take at least a year. The proposal at the moment is in utredning stage, which is like an inquiry, mm-hmm. uh, and then the deadline for that stage to end is. 22nd of May 2023 and then after that they have to send it out for consultation then it will maybe a bill would end up being submitted to go to parliament which could take months it could take years so I, I would say it would be at least a year so we know it's going to happen after the 22nd of May 2023 but yeah it's kind of hard to say where that was but if we look at the inquiry into introduction, introducing them for citizenship that was first raised in 2019 and that's got a suggested implementation implementation date of January 1st, 2025. So that's six years right. from when they first raised the inquiry. It's going to be at least one year. It could be as much as six years, but it's kind of hard to say because it's just kind of mm. a proposal at the moment.
0: Okay. Yeah. So that's kind of up in the air still. And now, I'm, I'm old enough to remember when the then Liberal Party leader, Losh Leonboy, came in for huge criticism and was accused of flirting with the far right when he made a similar proposal back 20 years ago. He raised the sort of spectre of language tests. And this time round. The plans seem to have been greeted with a shrug, basically. Why are language tests no longer controversial in Sweden, James?
4: Well, I mean the the whole debate has shifted quite a lot in Sweden over the last twenty years. Worth pointing out that Lars Lamborg did quite well in the election following um Yeah fo- following this uh, proposal for language test. So it, it did him some good. Yeah, that's true. It was it was their best election in a long time. It was their best election in a long time. So so you know it's it, it's it's never it's never been as unpopular with voters, perhaps, as um, it has been with many political parties. But clearly, the political environment in Sweden has changed a lot over the last 20 years. Sounding tough on immigration, on on immigrants, perhaps, um, on integration... Uh, is now definitely seen as a vote winner by most parties and is no longer seen as being somehow beyond the pale of decency as some thought it was twenty years ago so you know we 've seen that that the entry of the Sweden Democrats into Swedish politics has moved everything more in a in a slightly more anti immigration or tough on immigration direction and you know so one party after another has has seen the need to kind of adapt to that. Changing environment, starting you know you know with the Christian Democrats and the moderates, but also very much now the
5: Social Democrats. If I could, um, Paul, maybe just uh, interject right. with a Danish perspective on that, because it's quite interesting to hear you talk about a shift in uh, in Sweden from regarding a language requirement for residency as as being a, a controversial to a less controversial issue. Looking at that from Denmark, which is a country known for its strict uh, immigration rules and requirements and criteria and so on, that's the one thing that has never really had any sort of controversy attached to it the fact that you have to Mm. show that you can speak the language to be able to get residency or citizenship is completely uncontroversial and everybody just totally accepts it and I can yeah from from the point of view of someone who's lived in Denmark for a long time I can I can understand why it seems it seems pretty natural to me so it's interesting that there's a that there's kind of a different narrative about it or a different discourse about it in Sweden.
3: I still think it's a bit unfair because some people are just crap at languages. And it it, it is, you know, however, there are people, you must have had them at school, or you meet Swedes who are very educated who can't speak English just because they're bad at languages. And and I feel that... Not many. It is... (laughs) <laughs> but there are a few, they I find, exist. especially sort of creative professions, you get sort of, I meet quite a lot of arty people who just can't, I mean, I, I, I love them because it, it means I practice my Swedish, but you just do get people that can't learn languages, and I think it's a little unfair on them.
2: I mean, the, the Danish perspective on that would be like, well, why did they move to Denmark if they can't speak the language, if you can't talk to people here, if you can't understand what's happening, then you're always going to be an outsider.
0: Why does the government want to introduce language tests?
3: When they announced it, they said that, you know, there are too many people in sw- living in Sweden who do have a limited language ability and that if you don't speak the language, you can never really fully be part of Swedish society, meaning that this kind of language gap is part of the reason why there is this parallel society, which is um, a phrase that Anders Uggerman used, which is quite a loaded phrase, actually. It's kind of been, been used a lot in Denmark, I think, in part of the immigration debate, but... I think that's the that's the sort of ostensible reason, but the real reason, I mean the political reason, the strategic reason, is that the Social Democrats are trying to essentially implement every tough policy on immigration that the right side has that has the support of the majority of voters. So all of the sort of moderate, not that controversial proposals on immigration integration, they're basically, it seems to me, going to try and bring all of them in and thereby deprive the right of of the issue and sort of outmanoeuvre them that way. It seems that that's what they're doing. And in Denmark, that's been extremely successful. I mean, the Danish People's Party is now on 2%, I saw, and they were on 20% in 2014. So they've absolutely been annihilated. I don't know what
5: Michael has to say about that. Yeah, you can definitely put part of that down to the Social Democrats adopting a very um, a very strict line against immigration. They've also had a lot of internal problems. The Danish People's Party, they're kind of falling apart at the seams. have been overtaken by a newer far right party as well. So there are a few other factors in it, but uh, it's certainly relevant to talk about um, the fact that uh, a strict approach to immigration has become totally mainstream, and so they've lost mm. a lot of their a lot of their unique selling point because of that. that that's certainly true.
4: Yeah, and and I think, you know, this is sort of what we've seen in Sweden. We've seen that, you know, there was, if not a majority, at least a very significant constituency for stricter immigration policies even before... All of the Swedish parties started almost, almost all of the Swedish parties started adopting them. It was an underserved opinion. It was an underserved group, and there was a lot of party tradition, even in the moderate party that, that was that was that was standing in the way of, of a stricter immigration policy, a stricter integration policy. And um, it feels a bit like Swedish parties have kind of adapted to voter opinion. A bit late to stop the Sweden Democrats, but now they're hoping perhaps that there'll be a similar story in Sweden as, um, as there has been in Denmark with the Sweden Democrats, perhaps.
2: I do think it's interesting that so many politicians have specifically said, we want to do like Denmark and adopt this policy, especially when there are, pol- there are some policies, not this language one, which are controversial in Denmark as well.
0: That's sort of a natural lead-in to, to our main story, actually. So can Sweden resolve some of its segregation problems by placing a cap on non-Nordic inhabitants in areas with high unemployment and crime rates. That's an idea being put forward this week by Sweden's Minister for Migration and Integration, Anders Egerman, which he mentioned in an interview with the Dagens Nyheter newspaper, and it's also very similar, as we'll discuss soon, to a policy already in place in Denmark. Uh, what did Minister Egerman say in the interview, Richard?
3: Well, I think it's quite important to stress that this wasn't a government policy. It was more a suggestion. He sort of said, I think they were talking about the Danish anti-ghetto law and he said, "Well, I don't really like the idea of talking about non-Western immigrants. I prefer non-Nordic because for him it's a kind of language issue. It's people who don't speak a language that's like a Nordic language."
2: Even yeah, that excludes even more people, and it also doesn't make sense because Finnish people and Icelandic people can't speak Swedish like, this, this is, unless they learn it.
3: This is true. This is yeah. Anyway, yeah. but he was pushed on it, and and he said, and he said, "Well, I think about." It's not good to have more than 50% of any area uh, being non-Nordic because then you get pockets where people can live and work using the language of their home country, and that means they never learn Swedish, and that means they never integrate, and you you end up with this with this parallel society problem. And and the the journalist I actually met the journalist who did the interview, Niklas Arenius, after he had done it because it was in Almardon, which is wonderful because you meet all you actually get to meet all these people. And he and he and he said that he had he did say that I sat there with him for one and a half hours pushing him mm. to say what I wanted to say. So I I do get the sense he was kind of pushed into this. But then again, Anna Siegerman has gone on uh, Swedish Radio afterwards and gone on to say pretty much the same. Thing again, so he, he it's obviously something they've been thinking about. And because it was just a suggestion, he didn't come up with any concrete policies really as to how Sweden would do this. Because you know, th- Sweden has extreme housing segregation. A lot of areas of Stockholm, Malmo, and Gothenburg are ninety percent people who you know either sec- first or second generation immigrants. And to get that down to fifty percent is like it would involve massive interventions. And mm. and in a in a city like Malmo. If you, even if you spread people from non-Nordic and Nordic people completely equally, you still wouldn't reach fifty percent. I mean, more than fifty percent of Malmo is non-Nordic, so th- it's hard to see how it could be put into practice. And he said, and t- to be fair to Andersson, I mean, he said that he said, you know, this is just a hunch. If you want a hunch, I'd say fifty percent, but there needs to be at We'd need to think about it before we could do anything about this. He sort of stressed that this was an early stage. Mm.
2: He did also say in the interview, um, obviously the headline is the 50% cap, but further down in the DN interview, he mentioned that there are other factors that maybe should also be kind of looked at rather than where people come from. So it could be your level of education, your level of unemployment, criminality in the area, that kind of stuff. So it could be that non-Nordic becomes like if there's lots of non-Nordic people and there's also a high level of unemployment and there's also a low level of education and there's also a high level of criminality that all all means that you could be this area could be classed as being vulnerable but if it's just Mm. that there's lots of foreigners that maybe wouldn't put it into the vulnerable category
3: he he mostly like you say he mostly stayed on the sort of social democrat past kind of ideology which is that it's not a question of ethnicity it's a question of unemployment it's it's a class issue not uh not an ethnicity issue. and But he but in the end, he said, well, but it is also an ethnicity issue because 75% of long-term unemployed are non-Nordic. So he, he kind of, it, which is actually, I mean, I spoke to a political scientist yesterday who saw that as a big shift in social democrat rhetoric, that they're no longer just talking about it as a class issue, but they are actually talking about it as an ethnicity issue as well.
4: But there are a lot of immigrants who've come to Sweden living in a lot of these areas who were sort of educated middle class in their home countries and are now... Sort of have done a downward class journey by migrating to Sweden because of the labour market and because of, uh, because of the language issue. So it's, co- it's a complicated issue.
2: Everyone on this call is non Nordic. It's not like it's, there's so much more complicated than just saying, oh, well, they're not from the Nordic countries, so they have to go.
4: Yeah, it's, 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 it's a very complicated. But the, but the most, most complicated about this is how the heck do you actually do it anyway? I mean, it's, it's one thing to float the idea that, you know, we want to have more integrated areas we want to have left you you know one of less segregation well yeah great but that also means by definition that must also mean more integrated less segregated middle class areas white areas
2: yeah bussing kids to schools making sure that You don't just kick poor people out of poor areas, you also let them move into rich areas.
0: Let's bring Michael in because um, the ideas uh, Anders Egemann espouses are clearly inspired by Denmark's anti-ghetto law. Egemann was in Denmark, he visited some of these areas to look at what they're doing. The law was introduced by legislators in Denmark in 2018. What does it actually say, Michael, and
5: how is it working? I'm going to make a quick point first about the, about the terminology of this because, as you mentioned, as Richard mentioned, it's originally called the ghetto law, mm. which is an incredibly perjurative word and has some extremely negative connotations. I don't think anyone realised this or cared at the time they, uh, the, the previous government passed the legislation. Um, they're not using that term anymore. The, the new government, the social democratic-led government, changed it to uh, the parallel society law. So that's what they're calling it now. Uh, but the way it works is that housing areas or neighbourhoods with uh, more than a 1,000 residents can be classed as parallel societies, formerly ghettos, if they have more than 50% non-Western population and um, meet two out of four criteria which are related to crime, employment, um, income and education levels. So if you've got an area where there are more than 50% non-Western people living, if the population more than a 1,000... And if there's higher than average crime, uh, lower education levels, uh, unemployment and lower income levels, then they can be classed as, if they, meet, if, they have two, if they meet two of those four criteria, then they can be classed as parallel societies. And once they get that classification, they become subject to certain rules under the parallel societies law, which means, for example, people that commit minor crimes and misdemeanours in these areas uh, will face uh, harsher punishments than they will in other parts of Denmark. Uh, that aren't encompassed by the law. And small children are required, it's mandatory for small children to attend uh, daycare. The idea behind that is that they uh, will become more integrated and speak Danish because they're not speaking Danish at home. Uh, So small children are, yeah, uh, it's compulsory for them to attend daycare. Additionally, the uh, local housing authorities um, are required to come up with redevelopment plans for these areas and the objective for these redevelopment plans is that they will reduce the amount of subsidised housing by uh, to 40% by 2030. So they have to change basically change the makeup uh, of the area by reducing the subsidised or council ho- housing. Um, the idea of that essentially is to increase the income levels or the education levels or so on by making it a less underprivileged area by reducing the subsidised housing. But that's uh, led to some controversies because they've they've ended up having to or not ended up having to, what it means is that these housing associations are evicting residents because of the ghetto or because of the parallel societies law, if that makes sense. So the, so you've got these uh, neighbourhoods that get classed as a parallel society, and then the associations that run the subsidised housing are evicting some of their residents, renovating the housing, and then new people move in. And the, the idea is that they'll be uh, higher earners or have higher education backgrounds which will change the the statistics for the area and they will eventually come out of this parallel society's classification it's
2: kind of like forced gentrification in a way like you you say okay well we're not evicting you but you have to move out while we renovate then you renovate then you put the rents up so then the people that originally live there can't live there anymore because it's too expensive
5: all right and they'll be rehoused in the meantime because the renovations will take a year a year and a half or however long they take and so so they're going to be rehoused so there's a lot of controversy around it and also critics say that it's it's targeting people by ethnicity indirectly because they statistically uh, are more likely to be evicted because they are in these areas where there's lower income and uh, lower education levels and so on. So they're basically using different criteria to change the ethnic makeup of these uh, neighborhoods.
4: Does it work from its on its own terms? I mean, in terms of whatever you think about the about the general idea, is it possible to attract people to these areas who? don't sort of have to live there i mean it's how do you attract i don't know middle class people to um to an area that's that's got that's got a label of being a problem area is that something that that that, that people are attracted to and the second follow on question is but yeah, but where do the people who used to live there
5: go yeah it's not an easy one to answer um it, it probably it depends on the location of, of the area. For example, there's one neighbourhood in Copenhagen, Mülneparken, it's called, that is undergoing some of these redevelopment plans. Um and
2: that's the same one that that's the same one that Anders Ugeman actually went to visit.
5: Right, exactly. Um and that one's very close to uh close to the centre of Copenhagen. It's uh the the wider area where it's located, Nepal is a, 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 an area that's being gentrified. So you can easily imagine that once there are new refurbished apartments opening here, then people move in. Other parts in less privileged parts of Denmark or Copenhagen, possibly less likely. As to whether it's working, well, the government is saying that it is working because... The number of areas on this list is going down year by year what they're saying is that means that these criteria these unemployment education income so on criteria uh, in these areas are improving because um, once they improve then the areas get taken off the parallel societies list but uh, whether it's due to the actual law to the parallel society law and the redevelopment and the and the and the policies that have been put, put in place is another question because for example, if you look at the statistics for employment among non-Western residents of Denmark, that was, in, that was improving, that was going up before uh, these uh, parallel society policies were put in place. So whether it's because of them or whether it's happening alongside them is probably another topic for, for debate. Uh, you also asked where they go, James. I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure where they're going. Well, one of the criticisms of uh, of the of the redevelopment plans and the um, and the evictions and so on is that you're actually forcing some of the more successful people in these areas out because you, you're stigmatizing them by giving them this label of parallel society or ghetto, and then once you get people from immigrant backgrounds or ethnic minority backgrounds that go through education and get good jobs and so on they end up feeling forced out they end up feeling like they don't belong here because they feel like it's not a regular part of Denmark so it's kind of having the opposite effect of what you want to because you're the area could become more successful but you're kind of encouraging successful people to leave at the same time.
2: I mean that's kind of what I'm thinking is yet on paper you've improved the area because the people there now have high employment and they're highly educated. You've, On paper, you've improved the area, but you've not actually done anything to benefit the people that were living there. Like, it's not like the people that were living in that area are all educated now and have great jobs and are earning lots of money. You've just moved them. You've just replaced them with people that would, I don't know, it just seems a bit like you could invest in the people in the area and make the area better that way instead of saying, all right, all of you need to move out. We're going to bring in people that are well-educated and have lots of money. And oh, look, the area is better now. It's like, that, I, that, there's something about with that that doesn't sit with me. Mm. It just seems like a lazy way of saying, now we've solved the issue.
5: It's one of the biggest criticisms of it, I think. It's criticised as being a form of di- discrimination because you're picking out these areas that have got minority, ethnic, majority populations and singling them out to be treated differently from everywhere else in Denmark. And then saying, once different people live here, they're going to be better. The critics say you should be investing in the areas rather than trying to change them, improve improve education there and improve the the level of participation of people there in general society with various social initiatives and so on. That's the way to improve the employment statistics and the education statistics and so on, Um, instead of uh, giving them this this stigmatising label and trying to change the people that live there.
3: It can't be good that you have huge areas of all of Sweden City where 90% of the people are first, second generation immigrants. It just can't be good. OK, yes, you could educate them all to the same level as the rest of Swedish society. You could invest massively in schools, but it's still going to disadvantage people that they, the only ethnic Swedes they meet are their school teachers or policemen.
5: I mean, that can't be good. That's true, but um, on the um, flip side of that, you can say that if you, you force po- people to move away from there from their networks if if the only people you know are the people that live in your neighborhood and then you're forced to move away from your neighborhood because it's an underprivileged area is that going to reinforce or is it going to weaken the parallel societies problem it, you could argue that it would it would make it worse because you're moving vulnerable people away from their support networks so they become even more isolated and even, even more outside of society in a way. So uh, there are probably two ways of looking at it. If you're, if, if you, if you're trying to think of a solution to parallel, what, yeah, what, what's called parallel societies, where there's a kind of a low level of overlap with Danish society or Swedish society for that matter. If
2: you already feel like the government is against you, this is not going to make you feel less like the government are against you. I'm really
3: pleased that this has come up in Sweden because when I arrived here, I was absolutely shocked at the level of segregation and also at the fact that whilst everyone supported liberal immigration, no one actually wanted the people immigrating to live next to them. I remember a board meeting at my Bustadsret where all of these, you know, seriously lefty people there was an Arab family that had applied to live there for six months and they turned them down just because they thought "Oh, they might not be able to pay the rent oh I don't know if we can trust them you know we'd rather have someone a bit more reliable and you know you're the problem (laughs) I I, I just um and there's been a lot since he brought it up there have been a lot of sort of second generation immigrants talking about their childhood being kicked out of Södermalm their family weren't given a place on the list I think that the reason that there's such bad housing segregation in Sweden is not just because immigrants want to live in ghettos, it's that people haven't wanted them living in Vasastan or living in in Söderman. and I think Sweden has to accept that and look the country has to sort of look itself in the face and go you know who is the problem here you know and what can we do and and I'm glad that it's come up because it's been something people just ignore don't Absolutely. talk about
4: and it. if you look at the if you look at the rent controlled the few rent control flats that um, that get that get dealt out in the centre of Stockholm, for example, they you know they pay, people pay relatively low rents on them. You know, not that much different to what you pay in um, in Rinkeby or Schista. and they all go to Swedes. Why do they go to Swedes? Because Swedes know how to work the system. Swedes get in the queue um, when they are when they're young and they build up their queue time and then they then they get offered the flats first if you were really going to tackle segregation you would perhaps give some immigrants from from some of these areas a chance to get on the queue and perhaps jump the queue and get a flat in the center of town for cheap because lots of lots of swedes are getting them for cheap so why not share it around a bit
0: Merta Tenevi, the leader of the, or co leader of the Green Party, came out and, and criticised the comments by Anders Schiegerman. And she said that a better way to tackle this was to just improve these areas in general, which is what Michael was talking about. And that then makes them more appealing for the wider population to move into. Isn't that a better, a better way to go about it?
2: I mean, we've kind of seen that in Served in Malmö. It's still listed as a vulnerable area. But um, I mean, that's where I have my pottery studio. And if that's not a sign of an an area becoming more attractive, I don't know what is. And walking around, I mean, I I don't feel like cycling around there at night, absolutely fine. Lots of kids playing on the streets, but five years ago there was like open drug dealing there. And they've not moved people away. They've just invested in the area. They've made it more attractive for people to live there. They've, you know, they've tackled it in different ways. They've not just said, oh, you're not Swedish, move away.
0: That brings us to the end of this week's show. Thank you to James Savage, Becky Waterton, Richard Orange, and Michael Barrett, and thank you for listening to Sweden in Focus. Until next time, take care.
1: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quins.